Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is a husband, father, best-selling author, and the pastor of Reformation Fellowship in Sedona, Arizona, Dale Partridge. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. I think it's safe to say we're at war. When most people hear that word, though, they immediately think of guns, bombs, and bullets. Thankfully, we're not at that kind of war yet, because there are other kinds of war. Right now, the big subject of discussion heading into the midterms is political war. Past that, people are beginning to acknowledge that we're in the midst of a massive cultural war. Some are also aware that there's a war for your attention. There's also a war over language, down to the definitions of words like woman. And as I've written on Instagram, the war over language is a war of ideas, which is, at the bottom level, a war of worldviews, of cosmologies, and even of theologies. One of the reasons the 2020s have been so difficult is that many of us can now see that all those wars and many more are being fought at once, in the open. And if you're listening to this, you're probably aware of most of them, which means that you're a combatant, way better than a casualty. And I'm sure you know many of those as well. So given that we're all fighting many of these wars, more or less, how are we meant to fight them? Each man will answer that question differently. But the best approach is to pick a strategy that lets you fight as many of these wars as possible, all at once. Because if we can win the war of worldviews, language, attention, culture, and politics, we can avoid the war of bullets. Among many other reasons, that is why I do what I do. If I can earn your attention and use clear language to communicate a compelling worldview, producing not just content, but artifacts of culture, I can equip us all to fight bravely on the battlefield of politics in the hopes that the war goes no further than that. If you've ever wondered about the top-to-bottom mission of the Renaissance of Men, that is it. That is why I do everything I do, and wish I could do more. I believe these are wars we can win. I believe these are wars we must win. And the good news is, I'm not alone. Because there are men out there doing the same. In fact, I'm one of the new guys. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Dale Partridge, and he's the pastor of Reformation Fellowship in Sedona, Arizona, just a couple hours north of me. But he's not just a pastor. He's also a best-selling author and the head of an enormous content creation network on the web, social media, and in print that evangelizes Reformed theology in a crisp, clear, compelling, and highly aesthetic way. A lethal combination. It seems in some ways that all roads lead to Moscow, Idaho these days, as Doug Wilson and his team carry the torch of Christ into culture. I'm sure many of you also know about John MacArthur of Grace Community Church, the late R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries, and the growing Apologia Studios empire here in Phoenix. They all do fantastic work on behalf of the kingdom, true warriors of the faith. 
But whereas they all focus on long-form content with print books and extended sermons, Dale understands that perhaps one of the most important wars that any of us fight today is the war for attention. So what differentiates his content is not just theological rigor, but economy of exposition. Killer 90-second Instagram reels about the finer points of Reformed theology, not to mention Halloween and other cultural issues, and a 70-page book entitled The Manliness of Christ that could have easily been three times as long. And not hour-long sermons of his own, but a wealth of resources about how to build your own biblical house church. I can't stress how important this approach is. At the time I'm writing this, Doug Wilson's Canon Press has a new book coming out by Dr. Stephen Wolfe about Christian nationalism. The book is over 400 pages long. That is a vital strategy. Contrast that with Dale's approach that emphasizes brevity, clarity, and economy to connect with those who don't have several hours or weeks worth of time or attention. They do have several minutes, though, so you'd better make it count. Dale does. And there you see the full spectrum of the battle being fought, the war for hearts, minds, souls, and our nation. Welcome to it. In our conversation, Dale and I discussed his book, The Manliness of Christ, and the effeminacy of the American Christian Church, how America has lost God's grace, searching history for examples of biblical masculinity, the courage, commitment, and intensity of Jesus, community building in northern Arizona for people around the country looking to escape their failing blue states, and his anti-porn program, Stand in Victory, and how Christian men can help defeat that scourge if it impacts their lives. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. This is a free podcast. If you'd like to give back, you can share this episode with a friend. The Renaissance isn't about me, but men and women around the world coming together to rediscover and reestablish timeless principles of masculinity and femininity. Sharing this episode or any episode with a friend, family member, or on social media is a great way to do that. You can also leave a rating on Spotify. With just one click, you can give it five stars and make sure this podcast gets recommended alongside some of the greats. As you may have heard, someone recently called me the Christian Joe Rogan, and I'm going to run with that. Your five-star rating on Spotify helps Ren of Men be recommended alongside JRE. You can also leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. If you tap the five-star rating there and write a few words of support about what you like or even love about this podcast, that would go a long way towards men and women discovering us on that platform. For those of you who continue to support the mission of the Renaissance, thank you. A bit of news, part three of my interview with hit international podcast Cultish just came out this week. In it, I analyzed segments of a recent interview with pro football MVP quarterback Aaron Rodgers and Aubrey Marcus, where they talk about ayahuasca, the divine feminine, and more. Last I checked, the episode hit number 31 on Apple's Religion and Spirituality podcast charts, which is thrilling. The interview has been viewed almost 10,000 times on YouTube. I've been getting many heartfelt messages about it and seen it shared in some of the channels that I follow. There's a link in the show notes if you want to check it out on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. Finally, I'm hosting a podcast booth at ReformCon in Phoenix, Arizona, the weekend of October 28th and 29th. Speaking at the conference, we'll have Pastor Toby Sumter, Pastor Jeff Durbin, Joe Boot, Dr. Ben Merkel, David Bonson, and more. Also, Jeremiah from Cultish will be there, and many others. There's still time to get your tickets at reformcon.org. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, a husband, father, author, killer content creator, community builder, and pastor at Reformation Fellowship, Dale Partridge. 
Dale Partridge, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, brother, man. I am excited to be here just to have a conversation about manhood, all things Christian, all things building community, all things uh, evangelism, man. This is just great to have me. Excellent. Well, I've been super inspired by your content. I mean, I, I think you are really excellent, <clears throat> excuse me, at taking at re- taking really big theological concepts and breaking them down to like 90 second hard hitting chunks, which is so <laughs> neat. Well, we live in short attention span theater, right? It's like, how yep. do you take reform principles and make them accessible in, in, in a short form? And you're just so excellent at that. Yeah. One thing we've learned uh, over the years as being on the internet, doing social media uh, content communication is, yeah, we have to be able to be effective at making complex ideas be palatable, mm-hmm. uh, accessible, simplified. Um, and it is a it is something that's very difficult. You know, it's just like Twitter, right? You, you, how do you get an idea down into, you know, a handful of characters? Mm-hmm. And so it forces you to do the same thing. Those videos that I've been doing on Instagram that, you know, uh, post-millennialism in 90 seconds or whatever, <laughs> um, they, they, they're allowed to be about 300 words and they take me about an hour and a half to write because you're just constantly wordsmithing every single word. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's important because... Um, Again, people love those sh- short snippets. It's how we learn. Uh, there's a quote that says, we need to speak to people how they need to hear it, mm-hmm. not necessarily how we want to say it. Now, there's some truth to that in the sense that we, we want to communicate in a way that our audience will listen. Um, it's the, you know, at the same time, we don't want to completely modify ourselves to someone else just because they want that that mm-hmm. way. But we do it with children, right? We talk to kids. Uh, in a certain way that we speak to them how they need to hear it, uh, not how we want to say it. And so we, we modify our our communication strategies based on our audience all the time. And that's something that we've been doing and finding you know decent success with in terms of our, our mission is to you know, strengthen biblical and theological literacy in the church. And so our hope is just to get these biblical concepts out in consumable formats. And we also do long form, right? We do you know hour long podcasts and we do you know, big, long articles and books and, and those things. But we want to make sure that we have uh, content touch points at every, you know, entry point. And uh, yeah, those, those short snippets, they're fun to do, but they're harder than you think. Oh, I, absolutely. That really comes across because they're so good. Like if you, if you have to make, sim- making simple content is the most difficult kind of content to make because it's very easy to just, you know, blast out a bunch of words and be like, here you go, audience, sort it out. But to really take ideas, refine them, hone them down, and make them as clear and concise and compelling as possible, it requires an enormous effort, a discipline as well. Yeah. Um, I think it was Einstein who said the definition of brilliance is to make something complex seem simple. Yeah. And so that, that is really what we're trying to do. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm brilliant, but the reality is, is that we're trying to produce brilliant content, mm-hmm. that making these deep theological concepts, again, just accessible to the average Christian, meeting them where they're at. Um, and then at the same time, again, yeah, doing that long form content because you need both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think to, to give a good example of that, I just want to dive right into your book, The Manliness of Christ, which, um, which is one of the ways that I first found out about you. I'd heard about you and then I saw this come out. I'm like, I got to order this book. And you know what I like about this book? There are many things I like about this book. But one of the things I really like about it is you easily could have made this like a 300-page book or 250-page book or something for, for you know, a larger kind of you know, thicker thing. It's like, you know what? Well, let's just make this as simple as possible and clear and compelling and blast it out. And like, you really, I think you really nailed it. And it's the brevity that makes it compelling. It doesn't have to be that long. 
Yeah, we did this book. I think it was, I don't know, maybe 12,000 words, maybe maybe 15,000, somewhere between 12 and 15,000 mm-hmm. words. It's able to be read in about an hour, maybe mm-hmm. an hour and 20 if you're a slower reader. Um, and we wanted to make it, again, accessible. Most guys are busy. Uh, most guys don't have time to sit down and crank out a 250-page uh, book. It was, it was aimed not at the theologian academic scholar. It was aimed at the blue-collar everyday Christian. And I, I think that was what made it so um, shareable. People would read it and go, hey, you know, this is so easy to get through. Let's go through it. It was punchy, direct. Um, and it's really like a long article almost, mm-hmm. you know, but it's in book format, which makes it easier to share and send to people and, and do a, a men's study together. And I actually wrote that originally as a paper on a thesis for a Christology class in seminary. Hmm. Um, and I, I just decided, hey, you know, I think I should expand on this a little bit more and uh, turn this into a book. And we did that and we, we did a pre-order for it and pre-ordered 2,000 copies. And then eventually we sold now over, I think over 7,000 copies in, since April. Incredible. And so it's one of those things that you just... <laughs> If I would have guessed that this would have been the kind of heavy hitter revenue driver for our ministry this year, I would have been like, what? No way. And so um, it happened to be the, the, the thing that really supported us and allowed us to further uh, tackle some other projects as a ministry. And so, yeah, it's been a great book for our ministry. It's been a great book to get out to men because we obviously are living in an effeminate church culture and uh, we're so effeminate that we don't even realize it at this point. Uh, it's like a fish doesn't know is wet. it's wet. And it's this reality that, um, I mean, even our men's programs are basically women's programs reorganized for men. Yeah. Um, the church service, the songs we sing, the way we sing, the way we order, organize our order of worship and our liturgical structures, the design of the church, the, the, you know, the, the structure and the polity, the, there's so much involved the you know just the graphic design and the present presentation the names of the churches i mean it's just very effeminate mm-hmm. and so um i think my hope for the book was we have a an effeminate american christian church who is following a very masculine savior mm-hmm. why like why why do we have a gap between yeah. this incredibly masculine savior and we are producing this very effeminate church. And I learned that, um, that there's, uh, you know, the feminism movement, the shift that's happened there. I talk a little bit about that in the book and, and how we've arrived to, to where we are today. Um, but essentially, we've seen some theological shifts throughout church history, uh, decisionism, emotionalism, sentimentalism, all, all these things that have been elevated in the church that have produced, again, an effeminate uh, church now, when a, when an effeminate church exists, masculine men are not attracted to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you will not find strong biblical men looking forward to attending an effeminate church. Uh, on the other hand, you will you will actually see strong biblical women who are attracted to masculine churches. Uh, and you, this is actually seen in retail. Actually, I used to be in retail, you know, twenty years ago. And we learned, uh, it's a pretty, I would say it's a principle in the retail industry that a, a man will not shop at a store that looks like it's for women. 
but a woman will shop in a store that looks like it's for men. Mm-hmm. And so if you put a women's section in a man's store, you will get women to come in, but you will not get men to walk into a woman's store um, and to go to the men's section. And so there's some just psychological truth to that. But uh, you know, really, we need to find a way to make masculine churches, and not because it's a strategy, but because we have a masculine savior, and we have also a, a biblical patriarchal view of the faith that where husbands and fathers are uh, leading well and appropriately according to the word of God. And when you have that, you get churches like Apologia or churches like Grace Community Church with MacArthur. I mean, he's mm-hmm. that's a masculine church filled with a lot of strong men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we look at um, you know Tom Askell's church down in Florida. I mean, it's it's a strong church with strong men, and the the ladies love it because they actually feel even more secure uh, in their position, surrounded and supported by godly men who love them and cherish them and hear them but also our shepherds and protectors and providers and guiding uh, the flock in appropriate directions according to the word of God. So yeah, it's it's just a big shift that we need to take in the American church. And this is kind of a quick stab at that. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to acknowledge, you know, before we dive into the content of the book, I agree with all that is printing it in in physical form allows you to focus on the aesthetics of it. You know, the, yes. the paper and the, and the font and the spacing and the cover you know, and it makes it appealing in a way that a downloadable PDF kind of wouldn't exactly wouldn't exactly have. And there is something very masculine about the way the book is presented. It's like it does what it says on the cover, right? And I think that the way that you reach people is by it's the meta communication. It's not just the content of the thing; it's the whole presentation of the thing. And by making it, you reinforce the point of everything that you're trying to say with the presentation of it as well. And it really allows it to just kind of just to, to speak without saying anything, just by looking at it. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just, um, yeah, there's something effeminate even about like an e-reader, <laughs> right? You're just hey, like- man, lay off my Kindle. <laughs> you know, like it's just, not that it's, uh, I mean, maybe that'll shift. Yeah. You know, I remember when text messaging first came out, um, you know, I, I would have friends that would be like, you know, like they didn't want to say that I'll text you because it just sounded effeminate. You know, like, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll drop you a text. It's like, you know- <laughs> just felt weird. And, um, you know, so that, that could shift, but yeah, yeah you know, there, there's obviously a, a known fact about men having a study and having a yeah. library of books and, you know, sitting down with a physical document in their hands. Uh, That's there is really something masculine point. about that. Yeah. So yeah, anyways, but it's, it's just a, it is, it's a fun book, uh, a quick read the subtitle. I'll read to you guys right now. Cause, uh, you know, people were like, you sure that's not too harsh? I'm like, nah. nah. Um, the, the subtitle is how the masculinity of Jesus eradicates effeminate Christianity. Um, and so we, we just went straight for the jugular. We wanted to make a good book for, for godly men and, and really basically do a paradigm view, uh, a paradigm shift from what we are experiencing right now. Because right now, everything is so you know, Dane Ortland, gentle and lowly, you mm. know, I, I talk about it in the book of just, you know, the, the soft Jesus, the, the Roman Catholic painting where his eyebrows are tweezed and he's got blush on his cheeks and a little bit of like <laughs> lip gloss on, you know, there's just that <laughs> element, you know? And, and so we wanted to, to just go, I, I had, I had one critique from a, 
from a friend and a theologian um, who's more of a complementarian um, and I would even say a soft complementarian and maybe even going into the egalitarian world. But his good, good brother loves the Lord. But he was frustrated with the book because it wasn't you know, presented in a way that women are honored or you know, he, he just felt yeah. like it was offensive to women. And I said, well, the, uh, the women aren't the audience. The audience, I'm not, I'm not trying to like lift up women, not because I don't want to lift up women. I love women. God loves women. We, we know that we are equally valuable. We have different roles. Um, this was an angle. This, this wasn't balanced at all. This book is not balanced. It's not a balanced view of men and women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a, a one sided book for men about men. And so I think when people grasp that, they go, oh, okay, yeah, you're not trying to create a nuanced case for uh, you know, biblical anthropology or biblical gender roles. No, I'm, I'm just talking about men. It's a very one-sided argument. And I would say it's the counter-argument to maybe, uh, you know, I'm not going to even say gentle lily because gentle lily really is focusing on just the, the, uh, this, oh, maybe it is because it's the softer characteristics of, of Jesus. You, mm-hmm. you take gentle and lowly and the manliness of Christ and you put them together and you have a pretty good Christology. Um, mm. there's nothing like gentle, gentle and lowly. I go, ah, you know, it's, there's things in there that I go, it's not like, it's not it's like he's lying. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's, it's accentuated in a way that, that, that Jesus is just these things and all these things. Right. Um, and so I go, well, no, I think that Jesus is also resolved and intense and strong and, you know, um, powerful and masculine and manly and bold. I think he's all those things, which we can't just negate because our culture will buy more books if we talk about soft Jesus. Mm. I just want to let that ring out for a second. Because, <laughs> no, because no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Like it's, it's easier. And, and at the risk of not being able to cover other things later, I, I want to talk about the subject that you just brought up, which is, which is this idea that when you speak to men exclusively, now we're going to talk about men things to men there's naturally like a friction point. The answer is always like, well, what about women? It's like, why, do I, why does everything I say have to be about both men and women? But that friction is really unique because it's like, someone will be like, oh no, you have to mention women too. It's like, no, I actually don't. And, and people really react to that, which, which I think is quite strange. And maybe we could talk about that for a second because I think it's also really important. Yeah, I assume that, that we have been so indoctrinated with feminine feminization culture here in the West that we have actually project shame upon ourselves when we leave women out of the discussion Mm -hmm. because we've been shamed and guilted and, um, you know, essentially been pointed out and ostracized because uh, of a failure to do that in the past, which again, I don't think we have. Perceived failure. A perceived failure, yeah. And so, I think that there is, again, it's one of these things that we are so effeminate as a culture that there is demands upon men that are so illegitimate that we actually feel are valid, but we can't recognize it because we have been so feminized in this generation. And so um, basically understanding and seeing masculinity 
outside of modernity is difficult. Mm-hmm. Figuring out a way to 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 operate on a more biblically accurate cultural plane than what we have today is difficult. That's why church history and cultural history or historical theology are such important disciplines because we we need to see how men were viewed 200 years ago and adopt what was very biblical and honoring and helpful and God-glorifying and reject anything that wasn't. Um, right now, we are are not really sure. Our bearings aren't straight about what masculinity is, what manhood is, what boundaries are upon those things. How are we to appropriately um, you know, handle those discussions uh, today in a church that's offended by masculinity? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when do we push hard and say, no, you're wrong? And when do we go, okay, well, let's have a discussion. And when do we go, that's actually, we shouldn't go down that road. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a, there's a react, reactive movement happening right now to f- the feminization of men, which has a lot of good in it and maybe a little bit of bad. Yeah, um, oh, for sure. And so we, we need to figure out a, a more balanced time. Uh, uh, you know, and again, I, I look back into the, to the Puritan era, and I think it was one of the most fruitful, God-glorifying moments in church history where you have this beautiful dance between the genders um, of people understanding their biblical identity and role um, where marriages and families and homes and sexual relationships were very clear. Um, I think that there's uh, something beautiful about looking at that and going, how do we bring that back? I think God's grace was on a generation in a way that it's his, his grace is not on our generation. Mm-hmm. And so looking back through history to find those more balanced eras. Now we, we don't want to romanticize about it as if like we need to go back. It's like, no, we actually just need to find what's biblical, see an expression and, and really make it true now because mm-hmm. you can't, you can't sell tickets to a show you've never been to. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the difficulty, right? Is that you, you, you know, you you want to bring people to a place that you you haven't seen or you haven't been to, and and that's what's hard for men right now is they trying to create a, a biblical culture in your home without ever witnessing an example of it is radically difficult. We have families come to our church, and they start to see all these biblically ordered men who are catechizing their kids and doing family worship, and women that are walking in submission to their husbands. Uh, lovingly and willingly, and um, children that are obedient and well-behaved and get disciplined when they don't uh, walk in in God's ways, and men who are connected and theologically astute, and women who are incredible homemakers at every... They, they walk into a community like this, and, and they're just flabbergasted because they've never seen anything like it. And it gives them vision to recreate that biblical order in their own life. Now, th- this is the struggle, is that we don't have many models for that today. It takes men who are willing to study history 
and basically re-pioneer that balance of manhood and womanhood in their own homes and churches to present a visible and tangible model for uh, families to examine and to copy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, as shepherds, right? You know, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ or imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think there's an element there of going, okay, let's go back and figure out what, what does it mean to be a masculine man? Yeah. And how can I model that? Not just in my church, but in my home, but also on the internet to give guys a vision for basically, you know, conforming themselves to biblical Christianity or biblical manhood. Mm -hmm. So, that, and that that is exactly why I'm here talking talking to you right now is that I, I started I observed that need for men to recreate masculinity and that is what led me to Christ. Like ultimately, all roads of masculinity lead lead to that faith because you're not going to find it really anywhere else in a healthy and productive and fruitful way, um, in quite the same way. And and so it was like, well, this is this was the whole idea of the Renaissance of men is this rebirth of masculinity, you know, into something that we haven't ever actually seen before but that still lives within us. And so men creating that. And then the interesting second stage after that is getting women to, to come into that as well, because a man can desire to set up a biblically, uh, a biblically based, you know, home and a strong productive uh, family. But then there's also the process of women surrendering what feminism has, has essentially forced on them in many cases and trusting that that's a safe environment when everything in their lives has told them that that's bad, wrong, patriarchal, escape, liberation, and everything, and getting them to lay down their sword and go and participate in that and see that it's actually not just safe, but it's fruitful and blessed and, and, a, and, a, and a wonderful um, God-honoring and woman-honoring way to be. And that's the process that's going on all around us right now for those of us that are in this community. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I've learned as a pastor over the years, you know, whenever you get a woman in a church who hates masculinity or is guarded against it or scared of it or wounded by it um, or hates the idea of submission or hates the idea of women not teaching or preaching in church or, or whatever it may be. And if you're in ministry long enough, you'll bump into plenty of that. Mm -hmm. um, my experience is that that always comes from women who are not loved, cherished, and heard. Mm -hmm. And so whenever uh, I see that, I, I talk to the gentlemen, uh, if, if they're married, which generally they are, I, I say, you know, you have a dilemma on your hands that's going to take you some time to, to heal. Um, and the Lord is obviously good at turning canyons into cracks, uh, meaning that he could take a broken heart and a broken understanding and absolutely restore it really quick. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's still a responsibility on the man's part of making sure that you have a, you have a, a woman who maybe grew up in a home with a terrible father, um, and a terrible history of boyfriends. And, uh, so how, how do you love, cherish, and listen to this woman while still shepherding her and teaching her the scriptures designed for her to be safe as she's walking in submission uh, to your care. Now, again, I always think about submission as really falling in alignment with God's designed order. Right. And so um, in theology, you call this um, 
um, what's what's the term here? Give me one second to pull it out of my brain. Um, uh, uh, no, it's derived authority. There we go. Man, mm. too much seminary. Uh, it, took me, it took me a second to pull it out there. Derived authority. Awesome. You know, on earth, Jesus was walking in submission to his father's will, right? Um, he is an equal with the father, yet he is walking in submission to his father's will. Um, a woman is an equal before the Lord. Uh, there is nothing wrong with an equal walking in submission to a fa- in submission to another equal's um, leading. Because again, if you if you argue that a woman can't submit to a man who's equal, then you have a dilemma of saying that it was wrong for Jesus to submit to the Father who was an equal. And so, that's great. What what we need to do is realize that submission is is I don't have any authority in and of myself. The authority I have is derived from Christ. And the authority that, that Christ has uh, was derived from, the, from God, right? The Father, including himself in the Trinity. Um, I'm trying not to be a heretic right here. So- um, Please no heresy. Yeah, yeah. James White would be listening to me and going, ah. It's gonna jump where, through the screen. Where's your, where, where's your Trinitarian view? And so- um, He's always listening. So, yeah, and so- I, uh, but there's this derived authority element that, that the, when a woman is walking in submission to her husband, she's walking in submission to Christ. And, and so, uh, the authority that the husband has, isn't the authority of his own. It's the authority that has been given to him in Christ. Um, and so it's just, and, and it's a spiritual authority. I mean, a, a woman doesn't have to walk in submission to her husband into sin. Right. It's into all lawful things. And so, um, you know, it's the same thing with the government, right? We have to submit to the government unless the government tells us to disobey God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, you know, Peter and, um, was Peter and John, right? Uh, Peter and James, I can't remember, but, um, you know, you know, essentially they're telling them, Hey, you, you got to stop preaching the gospel. And now nah, I, I can't obey. I got to obey God, not man. Mm-hmm. And, and and that is the exercising of that reality. But then you have Jesus also going, Caesar, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so you balance it out. So you, you submit as long as it's in a lawful order, but you don't submit when it's causing you to sin against God. And so there's a an important balance there for men to understand, for women to understand, um, understanding what biblical patriarchy looks like compared to the world's demonization of patriarchy uh, in a secular way. And so lots to learn here from men. And I think, again, we need to look back at, at the biographies of other men and the times of other men so that we can study up, uh, and including, obviously, uh, the model is Christ himself. Mm-hmm. But how have other men practically walked that out uh, in a way that has been fruitful, that it's, bare, it's bore much fruit, and we can actually go, this was a fruitful man. Um, not because he was rich or not because he was famous or not because he was um, liked, but because he had spiritual fruit overflowing in his life and his family and his work and his church. And so finding those men uh, so that we can have visible models and replicate, uh, replicate those examples as those men followed Christ and so can we. Mm, you, said, you said the magic word that I've been saying a lot of lately, which, is, uh, which I got from Doug, one of Doug Wilson's recent blog posts about fruitfulness. 
right? You can, you can, there's a, a wonderful rule of thumb. You can tell a tree by its fruits. And it's like, okay, let's look at your unbiblical relationships and see how much fruit they produce. Not a whole lot, right? And if that's the standard, you know, our, our modernity is sorely, sorely lacking. In fact, it's anti-fruit in many ways. And to yes. see, and to go to a church like Apologia and to see large and growing families, like five kids, seven, you know, all these things, it's, it's something that so shatters the modernist mind that even I have. That's like, no, this is what fruitfulness looks like. And of course, on Instagram last week, there's a family with like 12 kids, you know, it's like you run the numbers on that. If they all have 12 kids, are they going to produce like a small town worth of a family? Like, can grandparents even remember that many kids' names? But that's, there's something so glorious about that. But modernity has everything so completely upside down, you know, where politicians are even talking about, hey, if you have a pinch in your wallet, you should get an abortion. It's like madness. It's mad. It's madness. And, and, it's it that prevents that imagination i think of looking back and saying it didn't always used to be this way but we have to reimagine it ourselves yeah we we need to study history at this point because we've lost our bearings yeah and we have lost our examples um and i think that's what a lot of men are doing right now we we basically realize that the 1900s was a absolute cesspool of bad examples. I mean, the, the, the greatest generation and the boomer generation, the boomer generation essentially was obsessed with pleasure and convenience. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that, that is absolutely the mark of that culture is pleasure and convenience. It's, um, the first time you had a real serious retirement world, uh, view, uh, the goal was retirement, you know, and, um, there was, you know, again, everything was convenientized, right? Uh, mm-hmm. In that generation, everything was about um, pleasure and, and, you know, it was, it was self-seeking. And now, obviously, there's exceptions to all of that, but generally so. Yeah. The, the world we have today came from the parents we had, you know, and the, the grandparents they had, or we, we also are the parents they had. And so there is some sort of fault upon the generations that we need to look upon. Um, now we also need to honor our fathers and mothers. <laughs> so there's, there's a, a balance there that we need to uh, be careful with, but ultimately we are, we are in a breaking down of the West. Mm-hmm. And I think we're getting real close to the bottom. Yeah. Hope um, so. I, and I actually think that there's, there's a, there's a rising movement of strong reformed biblical families who are committed to really seeding, uh, S-E-E-D, seeding, um, and nurturing a revival of the biblical family. Mm -hmm. And it's not a small movement. Uh, We also see, you know, the growing trend of Christian nationalism, which uh, again, has a handful of definitions, but uh, the right definition of believing that God is the ruler and king of all the nations and our desire is to have a nation that is ran and ruled by Christ and his law and his ideals and his rules. And um, that uh, our hope and, and intention is to evangelize the nation with the gospel and to use our power and money and influence and votes 
to establish a law in a land that glorifies Christ. Um, and so that culture there is growing. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing, I think, all around a, a movement that's taking root and that was not here 10 years ago. Mm-mm. And so that's why I think that we're at the bottom and we might even be sprouting mm-hmm. um, from those seeds. And I think that we are going to have a bit of a war for the next you know, decade or two, but I think yeah. we're going to start to see fruit um, coming in you know, my kids' generation and my grandkids' generation if we have enough faithful families that really fight back against the you know, gender, homosexuality, uh, you know, perversion, uh, pornography, you know, generation that we all are all in. And so, um, yeah. And again, it starts with men. It starts with men. If men know their roles, then they can shepherd their wives into their roles Mm -hmm. and shepherd their children into their roles. But if men are lost, then women, I always tell people Satan's, Satan's plan is this, that men would be boys that women will be men and that children as a result would be irrelevant mm-hmm. and so, or, or not wanted. And so that's what's happened. You know, the men will be boys. They're going to play video games and watch porn and um, watch sports and basically look out for all of these uh, ways to uh, pacify real desires with false outlets. Um, you know, a digital outlet for a, a real desire. I, I want to have sex. I'm going to look at porn. I want to have, I want to conquer and I want to rule. I'm going to do that in video games. I want to have camaraderie and intensity and be athletic. I'm going to do that with TV on sports. And, mm-hmm. and so you have this like absolute emasculation of society because men are, again, do basically releasing them, their, their true masculine desires in illegitimate ways. And so we're just needing to find our our bearings, and mm-hmm. that's that's what this book's about. It's an attempt to uh, to just get your bearings straight about who Christ is, and the step one. And there's going to be other great books. You know, my friend Michael Foster wrote mm-hmm. "It's Good to Be a Man." It's another great book, great book. Um, to have on your shelf on the on the um, you know the Chronicles of Manhood. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's dive. Let's dive. there's a there's a lot that you said in there that I want to dive off of, but I want to do honor to the book because I think we can just start where you start in the book that brings it all together. With um, let's see, we get to the page real quick. Um, it's right here. Well, the quote is, "Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem," and how you begin the book there, and there's so much wrapped up into that simple statement. Of, of, of men turning towards their duty. As Doug Wilson says, the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility is his preferred definition, definition of masculinity. I love that definition. And you see Christ taking on you know, suffering and death and to ultimately, be, to ultimately to be fruitful and leading a community of men and women there directly to something, um, something that will be very challenging for them, but they also need to experience. And we all need to do experience, right? Yeah, I mean, so this this statement that Jesus makes, uh, what's the scripture reference? Is it sitting there on your, next to you? It, I'm I'm gonna flip to the page, um, and I'm I, I for some reason I can't find it. I figured it was at the start of chapter chapter oh, yeah. two. It's okay, you can Google it. I can um, Google it. That's right. I do have well, the internet. And, and, and anybody else that's on the that's listening right now, but Jesus says towards the end of his ministry, he says, "Behold, 
we are going up to Jerusalem. And Matthew this, this, 20, 18. There you go. Uh, this passage of scripture is easy to just pass over as being right. like, ah, okay, I'm just going to read that. You've probably never heard an explicit, beautiful, intense sermon on that passage of scripture. Right. Um, this, this verse, we, we, we can pass over, but we need to realize what it actually means and, and what's behind it. Jesus essentially knew uh, through his omniscience that he was going to Jerusalem to be killed. And not just to be killed, but to become a sacrifice and take on the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Come and on. so this is, this is something that is not just that I'm going into war like World War II and I'm going to die for my country. Um, this is far beyond the consequences and the intensity of that. And he is, unlike any person who's ever lived, taking on the full wrath of God for the weight of sin for all of his people. And, and Jesus makes this statement of absolute, resolute commitment to, we are going to Jerusalem. And it says that in the passage, it says that he was out in front. And so he's not just walking in the back. He's not scared. He's not lagging. He's not complaining. He's not concerned. He is absolutely out in front and, and committed. Now, what, what, this, <laughs> what this exemplifies, it's dripping with intense masculinity because if you were Peter or John or James, you're, you're sitting there going, this is nuts mm -hmm. because they knew. I mean, you, you hear them constantly going, are you sure that you want to go to Jerusalem? You're gonna, they're going to kill you. And so Jesus making a commitment to go there, they're, they're on an earthly level, not even grasping the reality at this point and they're concerned for his life and probably worried for their own lives. Um, every time Jesus is in Jerusalem, it's a scene. Um, and, yeah. and they, they, they know that. And so, uh, at this point they know that it's going to be a big deal. And so again, to have such absolute clear comprehension of what is going to happen. And in the face of that danger and intensity and sacrifice, be committed without, with an unwavering, um, walk in front of your brothers is just a very masculine moment yeah. that you can easily just read right over. And so it, it, was a, it was a moment that I caught on the resolve of Christ, which I think is, seems to be the hallmark of the book. People tend to really appreciate that section on the resolve of Christ because I think that maybe people don't realize that he came here specifically to die and he knew it and was committed and actually think about this. He never complained once because a complaint would be sin. So Jesus never complained. Um, and so he, he's literally not complaining on his way to go basically die the most horrific death that has ever been died. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that, a, if that's grammatically yeah, correct, but, um, but this is something that we can't miss. And so I, I end up basically looking at a handful of characteristics of Christ, including his intensity, including his boldness and, and including his resolve and, and just spend a little bit of time 
breaking those down so that we as men can go, am I resolved to, to accomplish hard things? Am I resolved to accomplish things that are going to cost me, but are going to be a benefit to my, my family, my church? Um, am I willing to be sacrificed or my reputation or job to be sacrificed for Christ? Am I willing to reciprocate in the same way that he has sacrificed for me? Or not in the same way, but in a similar way. And so um, these are important questions, I think, for, for examination as you read through the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think grit. <clears throat> grit is an underappreciated quality of men. It's like you, have, you like the, that men don't properly know how to value. Like yes, protect, provide, shepherd, and all that. But you know, when when things get really hard, do you have the fortitude to to not only continue, but do you have the fortitude to turn toward where things are the hardest because that's where you need to go? And well, and, and Christ was made biologically male to accomplish yes. this end. That that's the that's another part of the book of just realizing that that the task at hand for the savior could not have been accomplished in a female body. And you okay, you so, actually did a quote about that as well from the female general, I think. Yes, well, not, it, not exactly about that. Yeah, but it's this we we talk about this in the book and it, just the idea that Jesus was male. He came in in flesh, but he didn't come in a female body. He came in a male body with a male biology that permitted him to have the hormonal and masculine testosterone required to accomplish crazy things like, I'm going to go and just knowingly and willingly let people hammer nails through my hands and feet. and and, and and obviously stand up against the Pharisees and the, the, the current religious elite and, and to call out people with a, ferocious, a ferociousness that's pretty uncommon to pastors today. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Steve Lawson was the one who said, you know, the one thing wrong with pastors today is that nobody wants to kill them. Um, I love it. <laughs> and that's, the, that's true. I mean, um, Jesus was absolutely hated uh, for his commitment to righteousness. And so um, there's just a lot there of realizing that, that you, can't, you can't take gender out of the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, he's male and biologically male. And, and he's, not, he's not androgynous. Like he's... Right. He's like a perfect amalgam of woman and man. That, that's not it. I, yeah. I hit that one hard in the book. Um, but he's, he's absolutely fully male. The back of the book, I write a statement. I say, Jesus was the most masculine man to walk the earth. In fact, if you hate masculinity, you will hate the biblical Jesus. And so we don't think of Jesus as super masculine because we've spent the last century in Jesus is my boyfriend, you know, songs at church and and we just we just sing all the the soft and emotionalized and sensationalized and uh you know songs and and lifestyle about about jesus and so we really do need to repair that with balance jesus is gentle and lowly but he is also ferocious and bold 
in a way that would make you radically uncomfortable, even if you're a very strong man. Mm-hmm. That you could, because you'd go, whoa, like... <laughs> that's a lot. Th- that's a lot. I mean, think about the bravest person you've ever met in the world and then times it by 100,000 and you get Christ. And so, yeah. I mean, you, you, the guys that are rock, walking in on Normandy are brave men, but they're not facing anything remotely close to the thing that Jesus was facing. Right. And so, and they're worried and fearful and scared and likely complaining the whole way. Jesus wasn't worried or concerned or fearful at all. I mean, obviously there's some divinity <laughs> involved mm-hmm. here, but, um, but he's, he's doing something that is absolutely only the Savior, the Messiah, the sinless one can do. Um, and so there's just such rich theology behind all of these claims. So it's definitely worth, I think, definitely worth a read. Mm-hmm. I want to bring this to um, to something that you said earlier, which is uh, building community. And so right now you're located in Sedona, which is one of the new age, you know, enclaves of the entire world, many of which have visited Goa and, you know, Byron Bay and Bali and stuff like that. Sedona is one of the places. And so this message of the biblical, of, of masculinity, of Christ, bringing it straight into a place where the divine feminine rules where effeminacy is the order of the day and, and you're building community there in that part of Arizona. Now how do you make how do you make this real in your ministry there? Because that ferocity, like is that is that part of what does that actually look like? Because it's one thing to as which I think many people in America have seen and react very negatively to the big sign, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And and that tends that that is a version of a ferocious message, but not necessarily one um, that I think draws people in. So how do you craft a ferocious message that at the same time meets people where they're at, I guess you'd say, and that's biblically true. Yeah. So one thing that we do is we, we, we do want to always encourage and take families out to evangelize, especially get the men out there mm. to, to actually hit the streets and, and hand out gospel tracks. And, you know, I keep gospel tracks in my car and my bag and uh, any opportunity I get, I talk to to people about Christ, and and um, oftentimes they're you know in conflict. Uh, I had a neighbor, for example, who uh, during Pride Month knew that I was a pastor, and I had done a series on homosexuality that month, and decided to put a rainbow flag hanging from his garage. Uh, across the street and he told one of the other neighbors that he was doing it as a way to taunt me. Mm. And um, so I thought, okay, like what's, you know, let's, let's just confront the gentleman about it Um, because we live in a culture that expects men to be passive. And so I took my boys um, whose names are honor and valor and um, I took them across the street with me at, you know, six and five years old. And I said, hey, come on, we're going to go talk to this gentleman about his flag. And, um, and walked straight up to him and said, hey, uh, neighbor, uh, I heard that uh, from one of the other neighbors that you had put this flag up to taunt our family. Is that true? And just point blank. And, you know, you're just like, the guy's like, 
oh, I did not expect you to come over here and have this conversation with me. Mm-hmm. And um, he made up a handful of excuses and had a conversation. But I said, hey, you know, do you know what that flag stands for? And uh, I gave him a biblical exposition of the flag. I also gave him a, 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 um, a cultural exposition of the flag. And I asked him, I said, do, do you support um, pedophilia? Because that's, that's lumped in there. Um, you know, do you support um, the mutilation of children's genitals? You know, uh, transgenderism that's it's coming with that flag. I mean, do you support that? You know, and a- asked him some hard questions. And, and, and then I ended with a gospel conversation, um, which he rejected, but we ended cordially. And I think that was what I wanted my kids to see is that you can go and you can confront and you can be direct and clear and loving and uh, present the gospel and shake hands and walk away. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- that's, a, that's a hard thing to do, to not let your emotions take control of the matter. But it was, things like that happen all over America. We just need more men who are willing to just confront it. You know, I, these drag queen story hour things. I just go, if I saw one of those in my town, I would rally 40 men to go there and absolutely make sure that that would not happen. We would disrupt that event in a legal and God-honoring way. Um, but it, it would absolutely not occur on our watch. And, and, um, and so that, that's the kind of stuff that men need to be willing to do. Um, I actually added a chapter or a section to a chapter on the second printing of the manliness of Christ called a section called the intensity of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, And I talk about a gentleman who does just that. And so Jesus would absolutely (laughs) do that. Um, And so um, there's just, there's just a lot there. Yes. Living in Sedona, it's dark, it's wicked. It's there's more psychics and witchcraft and uh, then per capita here than probably anywhere in the world. Mm. Um, we are in uh, this Northern Arizona, Arizona territory, uh, Yavapai County. Um, we are, uh, you know, hoping to saturate this county with house churches is what, what we do. We plant house churches, biblical house churches, reformed house churches. Uh, we do that from uh, reformationfellowship.org. But we, we are uh, hoping to, to plant, you know, 100, 200 house churches over a 25 year period that saturate the city uh, and, and really proclaim the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so there's lots going on up here. Um, and it's small, but we moved here intentionally, strategically, yeah. um, and, and not just to, to this, uh, city, but to this County. And, and, uh, that's our heart. We pray for pastors and meet with churches and, and work together. And, and, uh, yeah, we want to take this territory. It's Christ. Christ is King over this culture. And our, our hope is to establish that Kingship in a visible way. Um, I'm not going to say establish that kingship, make sure that people recognize his kingship in a visible way um, here in Northern Arizona. So I want to give you a chance to, um, I don't know, this is to sell this. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why, because I talk to a lot of people and a lot of people listen to the podcast that are located around the country that are looking for places to move. They want to get out of blue states, right? And they want to get into red states. And of course, many people are heading up to Moscow, Idaho. And a lot of people are moving to Phoenix. Tons of people are moving to Arizona, um, for better or worse in some cases. But in most cases, they're looking to escape the 
the collapsing blue state world. And so they see what's happening in, in Moscow and they recognize that it's a, it's a small town and there's the ability to make an impact. And they talk to me about moving to Phoenix. Like, well, the thing with Phoenix is that we're embedded in a larger metropol- met, uh, metropolitan area, which is its own thing. But moving to a small town, you can have a much greater impact on the culture and building the kind of community that you want to live in versus trying to take over some neighborhood in a, in a, in a city. So talk a yep. little bit about the Northern Arizona area where you are and, and, and let the listeners know like what's going on up there and, and, uh, and lifestyle, what it is you're looking to build. Yeah. So a couple of things, um, we are, we're currently in the Cottonwood Sedona area. We are establishing a community here and actually are prayerfully and probably planning to produce another community up in Prescott, Arizona, mm-hmm. uh, where our family, uh, will likely relocate and establish there. And so, um, we have a handful of pastors and elders that we have been working with, but let me give you a kind of a quick vision. Um, we want as men and fathers and husbands, we want for me, and I'll, I'll just speak from my own experience, but I'll, I'll say that I think this is historically true. We want our children to live where we live. We want that multi-generational faithfulness that is historic, meaning the sense that you would always see multi-generational families living in the same area. And they live in the same area because there is something there for them that has been established for generations that if you moved somewhere else would be very difficult to find something at the same caliber of opportunity and establishment. There's a reason that Doug Wilson's grandchildren probably aren't leaving Moscow in droves because there is something there for them that has been built by their parents and built by their grandparents and built even by Jim, their great grandfather, mm-hmm. um, in, in a unique way that has offered them something for them to stay. So there's really four reasons why anybody would move somewhere. And you're looking for four things. You're looking for a great church, uh, for a home, for a job, and for a school. That's generally the reasons why people are looking for. And so as parents, I'm going, how can we make sure that we are in a community where we can provide a robust and theologically rich community for our children so that when they grow up, they are absolutely inundated with opportunities for spouses, uh, with uh, wise mentors surrounding them everywhere, with relationships in, uh, that'll help them in careers, with uh, theological, uh, relational depth that is just difficult to find anywhere else. So, so we want to build a strong church community, 30, 40 house churches uh, up in the Northern Arizona area in the next, say, 10 years mm-hmm. um, by the time my kids are moving out. And we want to also, as a father, I want to buy my kids land. I want to buy my kids land. And I want to buy, I want to get rental properties. I want to, I want to secure them a place to live or, or at least save money for them to have a down payment, whatever it may be. Um, I want to provide them with, with a place to, to live. Um, and I want to provide them a place to work or at least an inter- introduction to the right relationships or the right skills and trades or the right academic training, whatever it may be. I want to provide my kids, those things. And I also want to establish a school, uh, a classical Christian uh, school 
that they can be raised in, that they could send their kids to, and that they could send their grandkids to. And so I want to provide all of those things for my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren so that they don't want to leave. Uh, now, I do want them to leave if my daughter finds a great godly man and is called uh, to pla pa or plant and pastor a church or has a career move to another state. I, I do want her to submit to her husband and follow and do those. But I don't want my kids to leave just because there was nothing there for them. And that is the typical reason why a child moves away. Uh, right. It's because there's just cheaper and better opportunities somewhere else. And, um, and I think there's something special if you're trying to build a multi-generational faithful community where the church is growing and it's, and it's, it's saturating the city. Um, that's what Doug's family's done. And I, I've, mm -hmm. I've been uniquely, I, you know, mentor might be a strong word, but very close with, with Doug over the years. And have a good relationship with him and have spent many, many days with him and his family. And that has been such a radical blessing for me, again, to see an example so that we could replicate it and, and uh, an example that is biblical and historical. And so that's our hope. That's our hope is to do that up here in Northern Arizona. We are looking for, for families, multi-generational families, meaning that I want families that are in their, their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s and their 60s. And so we are looking for families. And if, um, if anybody wants to reach out uh, to me directly, uh, you can just email dp at relearn.org and you could find me there um, and just uh, say, yeah, I'm interested. Um, and we are, we've already relocated four families here. Um, and by we've relocated, I don't say that we're paying for people to relocate, right. but, but we are helping them attracted. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're helping them get, get here. And so, um, but yeah, we need those foundational families at this point. And, um, you know, when you have 50 families, we have maybe 12 right now, but when you have 50 families, that's the beginning of a movement. Yeah. And when you get 200 families, you start to really shape culture. And when you get a thousand families that are all, again, biblical, theological, walking out their roles, mature, well-behaved kids that are men who, who work and actually have some sort of influence and are good with their money. And I mean, all of these things that are, are, are well-rounded, robust, biblical men, you, you change places and you change it because light is influential and our number one weapon is the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so the gospel goes out and, you know, Christ isn't going to stop turning sinners into saints. And so when you have men out there that are you know, preaching the gospel and women that are ministering to other women and children who are leaving a godly example to others that are watching, I mean, it's a powerful thing. And so we are absolutely aiming to produce a community uh, that just emulates and um, and radiates the kingdom of God uh, throughout our our area. So yeah, we, we'd love to have those families with us. And I think what a lot of people don't know about Northern Arizona is that it's not like Phoenix. 
it's green, it's lush, there's four seasons, you know, yep. there's, there's lakes and skiing in the winter and then really comparatively mild summers and beautiful landscapes. Like it's a, it's a beautiful part. It's not all like blasted desert earth. Like it is down here in Phoenix and Southerly. Yeah. It's definitely a, 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 a more balanced place to live. Yeah. We're, we're yes. heading into fall here and you get some dustings of snow and, and uh, yeah, we, we, we really love it. And yeah, and you still say generally warm. I mean, you're not experiencing like a Midwest winter, you know, you could still play a, a game of golf in January if you want, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we're enjoying it. So I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, but I, I also, I would be remiss if I didn't, um, if I didn't bring up stand in victory because every week I hear porn, porn, porn is, is such an enormous problem and you've put together such a compelling program about it. So maybe we can just talk about stand in victory real quick before we close the conversation. Yeah. Stand in victory is, um, stand in victory is, uh, it's at standinvictory.org. It's a quick, um, really a three part program, um, that you can just tackle in a few weeks, in a few days. It's a go at your own pace of a biblical approach or a gospel centered approach to breaking free from the bondage of pornography. And we've had thousands of men and women who have gone through the program. Mm-hmm. And it's not do better. It's not be better. It's be new. And it's really, you know, do you understand the gospel? Because when you understand the gospel, that, that really shifts the way we think. It's not how to, how to look at porn less program. That's not what it is. It's, it's radically different than that. And so um, it's short, sweet, punchy, clear, and cheap. Um, it's 49 bucks for the program. All of the money goes in to allow us to do the program better and more and market it. And, and so we're a nonprofit. Um, but yes, check it out uh, at standinvictory.org. Yeah, I've sent a couple of men to the program and they've been like, this is incredible. And so, yeah, thank you for producing that because it's, it's apparently it affects like 90% of men today, which ah. is insane. I just go, if you're not a believer, I mean, yeah, you just got to be absolutely inundated with pornography. I mean, it's, and so, um, it's everywhere. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're here to serve and, um, and yeah, I would love to have you in the program if that's a struggle that you're dealing with. Thank you so much, Dale. I really appreciate this. Where would you like to send men to find out more about you and all the different things that you do? Yeah. So have a podcast uh, called Real Christianity that I produce every week for the last several years. That's a great place to start. Uh, our website is relearn.org. Uh, you can get all of our books there. Uh, if you go to relearn.org forward slash man, you can buy The Manliness of Christ. Uh, you can see all of our other books and resources that are available there. We also have another ministry called mailthegospel.org where you can mail the gospel anonymously or personalized to anyone in the world. And so it's a really great, beautiful, theologically dense 15 minute gospel track that you can send to someone beautifully designed, uh, great packaging. You can send it with a Bible. And so just different things that are going on there. And so, yeah, check out those programs. You can find all the stuff, but I'm on social media, Dale Partridge on Twitter. Um, you can see the, uh, the hellfire theological storms there. And, uh, you can also find me on Instagram at relearn, uh, org. You could find us there as well. And so would love to have you. Um, and yeah, thank you for, uh, having me on the show. Well, it was just a great conversation and, uh, just a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much, Dale. Thanks for all you do for men and for the kingdom. Amen, brother.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.